0: Christmas season is upon us, and other than the fact that it is unusually warm, it is the most wonderful time of the year. Now, despite the, the purpose of Christmas being to celebrate Jesus, the commercialization of Christmas makes it easy for us to, to forget that, for Jesus to get lost in all that's going on. And when Jesus is lost at Christmas time, the culture around us quickly supplies us with two replacements. One would be reckless consumerism. How many of us know that many people at this time of the year, they, they go deep into debt and spend far more than they can afford to spend in order to buy every present and everything that they could ever want. And, and our culture encourages that. Our culture stirs within us and within our children, within everyone around us, uh, that we need more, that we should buy more, that if we truly love one another, we would spend just a ridiculous amount of money upon them. We are culturally conditioned to spend well beyond our means it's time of the year. The other replacement that the culture offers is a Christless spiritualism. Right at this time of the year, all kinds of feel-good movies come out talking about the goodness of man, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and miracles happening around Christmas. And, and according to the movies and the TV shows, the nameless Spirit of Christmas. He just does all kinds of really cool things this time of the year to move people to be kind and do miracles and all of that kind of stuff. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know We know reckless consumerism is covetousness. And according to Colossians 3, 5, covetousness is just idolatry. That's all it is. We also know the reason we speak of peace on earth and goodwill toward men is because of Jesus. That there is no nameless spirit of Christmas. There is Jesus. And that's what the season is about. Yet even though we know these things, it is very easy for us to get caught up in all that's going on in the world around us. We are just almost immersed in a culture of reckless consumerism and Christless spiritism. And it is easy for us to go with the flow and and begin to go in those ways. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start a series of messages, go through the end of December, and we're going to look at some passages that talk about the coming of Christ and and what that means for us, why that is important. Our goal in this is to keep our minds focused on Jesus. Not that... We shouldn't buy presents and we shouldn't enjoy Hallmark movies if that's your thing. Uh, but in all that happens and all that goes on, Christ has to be central. Christ has to be the focus. And if we are not intentional about making Christ the focus, he will not be. The culture around us, everything going on, will not enable us to drift into Christ centeredness at Christmas time. Rather, we have to put forth the intentional effort to focus on Christ. So that's what we're going to do on Sunday mornings. We're going to begin at the beginning. So open your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. That should be on page 4. We're going to look at the first 19 verses. When you find that, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. It's a familiar passage. Genesis three, verse one. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, you may eat, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day... And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. On thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. To Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat bread, till thou return in the ground, for out of it thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and to, uh, to dust thou shalt return title of the message is Why Christ Came. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful for this season and what it represents. We are thankful that you look down upon us. That Lord, that you saw a sinful people, but you loved us with a great love. And you sent Jesus to come and to deliver us from the bonds of sin. Deliver us from the, the punishment of our sin that is coming. We thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit... Worked in us to draw us to Jesus we thank you for your word that would guide us we thank you for today and the opportunity we have to gather here to look at your word and just to let you speak to us in the time and so God in this time, help us that we would lay aside any cares of life that we may have brought in. Help us, Father, to set everything else aside. in just in this moment, this short time that we have to listen to you and what you have for us. Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts and open our ears. That we would hear the word and we would see how it applies to us. Open our hearts. The word would sink deep into our hearts and bring forth good fruit into our lives. Plow up our hearts if they are hard. Go down deep with the Word into our heart. Take away whatever is distracting us and just weed whack it all away that our hearts would be pure and focused and devoted to You in this time. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Have Your way in all that happens, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man. Named Adam and a woman named Eve. And he put them in a garden paradise where all their needs were met. They had near perfect communion with God. They had a purpose for their lives. They were to tend the garden and to keep it. In the garden there was only one rule. And that was they were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which was in the midst of the garden. Things go along well until Satan comes along. And he begins to tempt Eve to eat the fruit. God said they should not have. Eve not only eats the fruit she gives to her husband. Who also eats of the fruit, and everything goes downhill from there. Sin, at this point, enters the world. Death came because of sin. The death resulting from sin was both physical and spiritual. Physical death did not come immediately, but later, but spiritual death came instantly upon Adam and Eve and upon all of their descendants, which would include everyone in here this morning. Adam and Eve sinned, their spiritual death, the corruption, and physical death was passed on to come to today, and we are... Born, dying, we are suffering from corruption. The earth is still corrupt. Our sinful nature resists and pulls at us and leads us astray from God. And apart from the work of God in our lives, we are spiritually dead, separated from God, without hope in this world. And all of us in here, we are double sinners. What I mean by double sinner is that we were born with a sinful nature. Something that makes us inherently resist the rule and the reign of God in our lives. That's something within us that if somebody says, do not touch, we have to touch it. That is sin in our hearts and sin in our lives, pulling at us, saying, no one, not even God, will reign over my life and tell me what I must do. But not only are we born with that sinful nature, we have actively chosen to give into that sinful nature. In the times God has said, thou shalt not touch, we have said, oh yes, I will. And we have touched it. We have resisted and rebelled against God's rule in our lives. Sin is a universal problem. There is no one on the earth who ever has lived or ever will live apart from Jesus that does not have a problem with sin. And sin is the reason Jesus came. Jesus came to save us from sin. There is one truth we must know to help us focus on Jesus throughout this season, throughout our lives in general. It is Jesus came to save us from sin. This passage gives us three reasons Jesus came to save us from sin. And and, and really three reasons why Jesus must save us from sin. The first is sin can be made to look good. Have you ever watched a... Infomercial on TV or online, so you've seen salespeople point out all the positive benefits of their product and all the things it will do for your life, and they tend to to leave out anything that would be perceived as negative. And that's a pretty good picture of the way Satan works in the world to entice us to sin. He is an expert at painting sin in the most positive light possible. He is an expert at showing us what the pleasure it will bring into our life, the excitement we will feel. He neglects to mention any consequences, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But he is painting the best picture he possibly can. And that's what he still does. He he did this with Adam and Eve here in the garden. That's what he still does in the world today. Now, it's interesting, and I wish we had more time to develop this thing, but we don't. But notice the way Satan comes to Eve. First, he cast doubt on God's word, right? In verse 1, yea, hath God said. It's the first thing he does. Are you sure? Are you sure God said that? Are you sure that's what it means, he? Second, he contradicted God's word. Eve said, yes, that's what God said, and if we do it, we'll die. So he contradicts, no. Verse 4, ye shall not surely die there's no consequences for that. Nothing bad will happen. It will be okay. And then, and then he, he, he casts doubt about God's character. And he makes it seem as though God is keeping them from something good. Look at verse 5. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God is squelching your personality. He's keeping you from being what you were meant to be. He wants to hold you back. Satan convinced Eve. God was trying to keep her from something good. And in doing so he painted this wonderful picture of sin. And it was so wonderful. Eve stopped thinking about what God had said. And she focused on the fruit itself. And then she saw the tree. And it was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. And it was a tree to be desired. To make one wise. And so she took the fruit and ate. And shared with the closest person in her life. Don't we see this all around us today? I mean, isn't the world around us filled with all kinds of things Scripture says are wrong? And yet they still appeal to us. We know what the Bible says. We know the Bible is clear. And yet, as we look, it is still very appealing. We like it. We long for it. It's because sin can be made to look good. Satan is a master of making sin look good and appealing to our base nature. Satan can make sin look good. As through our peers, he, he cast doubt on God's Word. Have you ever tried to say, I'm not, that's what you know, The Bible says I shouldn't do that, and had somebody, a friend, a co-worker say, Oh, come on. Are, are you sure that's really what the Bible means? I mean, is that... I mean, come on. It was written thousands of years ago in Hebrew and in Greek. I mean, how can you be sure the translation is accurate? Are, are you really sure that's right? You know what they're really saying? Yea, hath God said it? Or or sin can be made to look good as Satan through so-called scholars would contradict the Bible. Come on now. God, a good God, would never keep you from something you enjoy. A good God just wants you to be happy and fulfill your desires. And as long as it's right for you and it's your truth, go for it. And you know what they're really saying? You shall not surely die. And Satan, through culture, can make sin look good as as he tells us God is trying to keep us from something good. Look how much fun this is. You're missing out on it. When you get older, you're going to look back on this and wish you had spent more time doing this. You're going to wish you had done this more often. You're going to wish you had done this. You're missing out right now. And you know what they're really saying? God does know. The day you eat thereof, you will be like God. So, as all of that speaks to us, we begin to see the sin the way Eve saw the fruit. That it was good for food. It was pretty. It was pleasant to the eyes. And it could make me like God. It can bring something into my life. Now, the reason... Eve's description or the this Bible's description of how Eve saw the, the fruit is important is because we are specifically warned later about this idea. That right? love not the world, neither the things that are of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I don't have time to get into that verse. But just think on that. If you love the world, love of the Father is not in you. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. But notice how John defines the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... Good for food. The lust of the eyes. is pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life. It is desirable to make one wise. The lust of the flesh would be anything we can see or touch or taste or smell. And see. Now normally when we think about the lust of the flesh, we, we focus on sexual issues, sexual sins. And certainly that's a part of what we would understand this to be. But it's not all that it's meant here. Right? The lust of the flesh would be any sort of selfish or greedy craving we have solely to satisfy a physical desire. But physical desires are not bad. right? The goal of our life as a Christian is not to live a life free of desires. That's not the goal. God has gave us desires to us to enjoy. The goal of our desires to bring them into conformity to God's word that we would satisfy those desires in ways that are consistent and you might say legal according to scripture. The lust of the flesh entices us to satisfy physical desires God given right desires in ways that are contrary to scripture. Right? To do things God has said not to do. This is a right desire, but God has also said with every desire there is a right and a wrong way to satisfy it. And the lust of the flesh says satisfy this right desire in a wrong way. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. Did God intend for the trees of the garden to provide food for them? Absolutely. But what was the wrong way to satisfy that? With this particular tree. And that's what the lust of the flesh does. The lust of the flesh says this is a God-given desire. It's good. Do whatever you want with it. God says no. Here's the boundaries. Stay within those. The lust of the eyes has to do with anything we can see and then begin to desire. This can refer to seeing and desiring something expressly forbidden by God. It can also be seeing and desiring something that in and of itself isn't bad until we become borderline obsessed with it. It can be sexual, it can be materialistic, it can be a person, it can be a place, it can be a thing. The materialistic desire for more, better, and faster we see in our day is the lust of the eyes. But again, seeing things and them appealing to us, that's not bad. God created us as visual people who can see and enjoy what we can see, didn't He? The problem is not that we see it and we like it, The problem is that we like it to the point that we will seek it outside of God's will. Again, I'm sure the other trees in the garden were pleasing to the eyes. I can't imagine that the only tree that was pleasing to the eyes in the garden of paradise in Eden was this one. God intended for them to look at every other tree and go, wow, that's good looking. Wow, that's pretty. Wow, that looks great. Problem wasn't that they saw it and it was pretty and enticing. The problem was that they went outside the bounds of what God had said to satisfy that desire. And that's the way it is for us. And the pride of life. It means at least two things. Pride of life could mean self-centeredness. It's a person who is focused upon themselves and wants other people to notice them. They may seek attention through dress They may seek attention through looks. They may seek attention through position. They may seek attention through wealth. They may seek attention through the toys they have. They may seek attention by trying to outshine others or put others down. There are numerous ways that this could be gone about, but the goal is always the same. Look at me. Pay attention to me. And the other, the pride of life would be arrogance or conceit. It's an attitude of boasting. That makes me feel I am better than others. And the boasting could be from any number of things. It could be my family. My family is just better than your family. It could be my job. I have a better job than you do. It could be my money. I have more money than you. It could be my toys. I have nicer toys than you do. It could be any number of things. But the constant with it. Is that it makes me look down at other people. Those who don't have what I have. Are not as good as I am. And again, the pride of life that was desirable to make one wise. I mean, do you think God, they were like ignorant. God did not intend for them to learn things. God did not intend for them to grow in their knowledge and their understanding of life and how the world worked. Of course he did. There was a way that was meant to be done. There was a boundary. God doesn't intend for us like humility isn't that I say, I'm just the worst person that's ever lived. I'm terrible at everything. But if you have a skill, and you are gifted and good at what you do, it is not humility to act like you're not good. That is false humility, and it's pride. It's pride, because when you add that false humility, well, I'm not really good at this, what you're wanting is those to hear it to say, oh, you're wonderful, I just love the way you do that. It's pride. You are wanting them to focus on you. It's me, me, me. Humility. Humility is saying, well, I may be good here, but I'm not so good over here. And because I'm good here doesn't make me better than someone who's not good here. Because that person who's not good here is probably good at something I'm I'm not good at. But There's nothing wrong with, say, being proud of our accomplishments. Or being proud of the work we've put into to learn to do something, the problem is that the boundaries within it, and the boundaries are it can't make me look down on others to treat them as less than because they're not like me. So how many of us know the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life they allure us, they pull at us, aren't we? by nature, driven by our desires? I mean, I was reading in James just the other day. And James says that we're tempted when we're enticed by our own desires. I mean, none of us are tempted by things we don't like. We like our sin. That's why we're tempted by it. It allures us. The lust of the eyes. We, we see and we want things. I mean, we're in some ways, we're naturally wired that way. And pride. Everybody's proud. Everybody, anybody, can be arrogant. Just like that. And so those things are always pulling. They're always alluring. And the world and the flesh and the devil... People do everything they can to put gloss on them, to make them shiny and pretty and desirable and and acceptable. Because are, are you really sure God said? Surely it doesn't mean that. God's keeping you from something good. Sin can be made to look good and we are masters at justifying our sin. Therefore we need Jesus We need Jesus to save us from ourselves. Jesus came to save us from sin. Secondly, sin has terrible consequences. There were all kinds of consequences that came, but but one thing it's important to notice Is the serpent doesn't tell them about that. He doesn't encourage them, okay, now you're about to take this fruit, but be sure you're ready to do this. Because God might do something, but I mean I don't know what, but he might do something. He didn't encourage them to think long term. Don't don't think about what'll happen once you do it, just think about how good it'll taste. Don't think about what God's gonna say. Think about how pretty that thing looks and how how much you want it. Don't think about the potential consequences for doing this. He intentionally neglected them. Satan himself was on the earth. Why? As a result of rebelling against God. He knew there are consequences when you sin against God. He left out that tiny little bit of information to them. And when Satan is tempting us. He certainly. Isn't going to remind us of the consequences. Either. He isn't going to encourage us. To think beyond here. And now. Think right here. Right now. In this moment. What are the consequences of sins? This passage gives us several. Right, Sin brings shame. Right? Notice in verse 7. That they. The eyes of them are open, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves clothing. Sin is a, a feeling of guilt and humiliation that comes from sin or failure. It's, it's, uh, shame can hinder our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Now, what were they like prior to their sin? The Bible specifically says they were naked and unashamed. What happened the moment that they sinned? They were ashamed of their nakedness and they tried to cover it up. Prior to their sin, there was nothing to hide. Nothing to hide from. They were open and fully honest with one another. But now, now they had to try to hide. They had to try to cover up. So they couldn't see. Shame makes us cover up our sin. Try to cover up our failures so no one, not even God, will know. Shame makes us delete our internet history so no one can see what we've been browsing on. Shame makes us work extra hard to look godly on the outside so no one will know what's truly going on in our hearts. Shame makes us try to cover our sin and then hide from God and others so that we don't have to deal with what's really going on in our lives. Shame is a result of consequence of sin sin brings shame but sin also separates us from God look at verse 8 And they heard the voice of the Lord God walk in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden I think given the way this is worded this was the normal way things were done I think God routinely came to them in the cool of the day and walked with them In chapter 2, God talked to Adam. So I believe they were used to living and walking and spending time with God in this way. But, once they sinned, everything changed. They were ashamed of their sin, and so they hid from God. Their sin separated them from their God. From the relationship they had always known and had always had. Sin always hinders and ruptures our relationship with God. 1 John chapter 1 tells us that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now light and darkness in 1 John represent sin and holiness. And the picture is God is all holy, all pure, and there is no sin in Him. And John goes on to say That we have, if we, that we are lying, he says, if we say we have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness. See, the Bible paints it as an either or proposition. Either I'm walking in the light with God or I'm walking in sin and I'm separated from God. I I can't do both at the same time. It is always one or the other. So if we choose sin, we are always choosing the dark, and we are always choosing being separated from God. Sin also has earthly consequences. Look at verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband. He shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt. Eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also in thistle shall it bring forth. Unto thee. And shalt thou eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return into the ground. For out of it thou wast taken. For dust thou art. And into dust thou shalt return. Their sin made. Had earthly consequences. Not only were they separated from God. But now there would be. Pain. In Eve's childbearing. There would be. The, th- the ground would now produce thorns and thistles and it would be difficult for Adam to make a living out of the ground. Basically, it just pictures life became hard because of sin. Because in the garden, all of their needs were met. Life wasn't hard. But sin changed all of that and made their lives difficult. Scripture teaches we reap what we sow. And what we sow... It depends, or what we reap depends upon what we say. So we're all going to reap a harvest. We're either going to reap gifts and blessings from the Holy Spirit, or we're going to reap destruction and corruption from the flesh. And so we're all going to reap a harvest. The only question is, what harvest are you going to reap? What harvest am I going to reap? Well, the answer to that, it's not a, I mean, we don't have to wonder. All we have to do is look at what we're sowing in our lives. When we live for ourselves and we live to fulfill the desires of our sinful nature, we are sowing to the flesh and we will reap from the flesh corruption and destruction. Always. Sin will always make our earthly life hard. Sin will always bring negative consequences into our lives here and now. Not just at some point out there in the future and eternity. But right here, right now, sin will bring some sort of negative consequences into our lives. Because we will always reap what we sow. Sin is always destructive to our lives. Sin has expanding consequences. Right? Notice that Adam and Eve's sin, it's not just going to affect them. It's not like Eve is going to have problems in childbearing and then her children won't. It's not like Adam is going to have a hard time laboring from the ground and then everyone else won't. From this point on, every woman who has a child will have the problems and the pain associated with that. Everyone who tries to make a living from the ground will have the hardships and the trials that are associated with it. Everyone will now die because dust you were and to dust you shall return. Everyone, Their sin did not just affect them. It affected everyone who was born after them. Our sin never affects just us. No matter what we say. No matter how hard we try to convince ourselves. And we do. Every person I have ever known living in sin. If you're really pushed on it will justify it by saying it's nobody's business. It doesn't affect anybody but me. But we know, deep down, we know that's not true. We know it's not true just by watching the news. How many children have been born this year addicted to drugs or alcohol because the mother did drugs or drank during the pregnancy? How many people died because a drunk driver swerved and hit them? How many children were born with AIDS because of the sins of the mother or the father? Over and over again we see it in the news. But we know it on a personal level too. My life is intricately designed and entwined with my family. Anything they do will affect me. If my wife leaves me, it will not just affect her. It will affect me. It will affect our daughters. It will affect our church. If my daughters stray from the Lord, it will not just affect them, it will affect their mother, it will affect me, it will affect their grandparents. If I stray from the Lord. It won't just affect me, it will affect my wife and my children and my church. Your sin, my sin, it always affects others. We see it in Scripture. We don't have time to do a deep dive into it, but, but study David with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11-13. through 13, And ask yourself, how many people suffered because of David's sin? Read about Achan in Joshua 7. Ask yourself, how many people died because of Achan's sin? Over and over again in Scripture and in life, we see our sin affects everyone around us. Sin has expanding consequences. It always affects others. And then sin has eternal consequences. In verse 23, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. They were banished from the garden. This is paradise lost. Physical, spiritual separation from God. Because the wages of sin is If we were to look at 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. We'd see these passages give us long lists of sin. And tell us those who do such things have no part in the kingdom of God. The clear understanding of those passages is they don't go to heaven. Those who live in sin have no part in the kingdom of God. They do not go to heaven when they die. Sin has eternal consequences. Now. Now. Satan has not changed his modus of operation since this day to now. He still wants us to think about here and now. How much fun this sin will be. The excitement it will bring into our life. The pleasure it will bring. And nothing else. Whatever you do. Don't think about the shame you may feel later. Don't think about what this sin will do to your relationship with God. Don't think about the consequences these actions are going to have in your life. Focus instead on the instant, immediate gratification, not anything beyond right now. YOLO, baby. Satan wants you to believe there is no shame for your sin. Satan wants you to believe your sin has no impact on your relationship with Jesus. Jesus. Satan wants you to believe there are no consequences for your action. But Jesus says Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says Satan is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And a thief or a liar is always a liar. So the reality is, sin brings shame. It always has and it always will. Sin has negative consequences. It always has. It always will. Sin ruptures your relationship with Jesus. It always has. And it always will. And anything or anyone that tells you anything differently than that, they are a liar and an agent of the father of lies. And their goal is to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. Sin always has consequences. Terrible consequences. And Jesus came to save us from the terrible consequences of sin. And finally, sin requires a Savior. In the middle of all of this, God talks to Satan. It says, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, dust thou shalt eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy heel. Thou shalt you you shall he shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. In the midst of all the things Satan doesn't want you to know this is a part of it. He doesn't want you to know that even when sin first came into the world, God immediately promised a Saviour. God had a plan right from the get-go for someone to come and save us from sin. Satan wants you to think your sin looks good and is good. Satan wants you to be separated from God and stay separated from God. Satan wants you to suffer the consequences of your sin. Satan wants you to feel helpless and hopeless. Hopelessly separated from God. Hopelessly trapped in the consequences of your sin. Hopeless to do anything. But spend eternity with Him. But again, Satan is a liar. And he always lies. Because of Jesus, there is hope. Because of Jesus, there is salvation from all the things sin brings into the world and into our lives. Jesus is the Savior who came to save us from sin and He can do what no one else can do. He can forgive us from our sin. He can remove the consequences from our sin. He can take away our shame and our condemnation. And He can restore us to the kind of relationship with God. Humanity was meant to have from the very beginning. He can do this because of who He is. And what He did. Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just a prophet or just a teacher. Or just a miracle worker. He was all of those things and more. In John chapter 12, we're reminded of Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6 and told it was a vision of Jesus in all of His glory. We're told in the Gospel of John, the book of Colossians and Hebrews, Jesus is the one who created all things. So the great and glorious God, the creator and sustainer of all life, willingly cast off His glory and came to earth as a human. He did amazing miracles. He Taught in ways that astounded everyone. From the great theologians to the common people. He did wonderful miracles. He lived without sin. Then, after about 33 years of life. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. And murdered on a cross. The cross wasn't a surprise. It was the point. Jesus was born to die. He came for the purpose of going to the cross. The miracles weren't the point. The teaching wasn't the point. The cross because on the cross Jesus took the penalty for our sin he took all of that for us and while he was on the cross God laid upon him all of the weight and all of the guilt and all of the sin for all of our lives and Jesus hung on the cross and he took our hell until he cried out it is finished and then he gave up the ghost he chose to die. And He was taken down off the cross. He was laid in a tomb. And in three days He rose to prove He was who He said He was. He could do what He said He could do. And now He offers us
1: salvation,
0: forgiveness, freedom from sin. He, he now offers us a way out. So we can see sin as He sees it. So we can see the terrible consequences of sin and say, I don't want that. So that we can be saved from the consequences of our sin. So that we can have a Savior. And we can truly know God. But He not only offers it, He seeks us. Notice in this passage. God did not wait for Adam and Eve to come to Him. God went to them. And he went to them and he cried out, where art thou? He was seeking them to save them from what they had done. Jesus isn't waiting in heaven for you or I to say, oh, I guess I better go to Jesus and be forgiven. He's actively seeking us. His Spirit is here at work in our lives, working through the Word, drawing us right now. If there is a pull in our lives, it is Jesus saying, Where are you? Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Dear friend, there is no need to die in your sin. There is no need to suffer the consequences of your sin. There is no need to be separated from God. There is a Savior who loves you and died in your place and is calling to you right now. Come unto Him. He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will make you new. But you have to choose that. God didn't go behind the tree and grab them and pull them out, did He? He called, and then they had to come out. It's wonderful to know Jesus died for your sins. It's wonderful to know all that He offers. But knowing it up here isn't enough. You must choose Jesus. You must make the personal choice to come out from behind the tree and go to Him as He calls. And if you fail at that decision, knowing will not help you on the day of judgment. You must come to Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are laboring under the weight of sin, the guilt and the consequences of that, come to Jesus. Don't let the devil lie to you because he's telling you right now, you're okay. Are you sure that's what the Bible really means? Oh, come on, that can't be right. He's just trying to force his religion upon you. Dear friend, that's just the devil using your voice against you. Do not let the devil keep you from Jesus today. If he is calling to you, you come to him. You cry out to him. And he will save you. I want you to Stand bow your heads and and, and close your eyes.